It's Friday again already in Fitzroy, and the air is muggy and hot and close. A delivery driver wrenches to a stop outside Alastair's house. Alastair is the property developer nobody likes but nobody's met who lives in the brand new apartment with a huge, sharp yellow door. The driver leaps out of his van and tries the doorbell. He won't find anybody. I'm concentrating on carrying in two huge bags and three large pieces of white cardboard we bought this morning for a project the six-year-old is doing. The toddler is carrying, just as carefully, a glass bottle full of what he calls fizzy drink, which I bought him in a moment of desperation this morning, and as a result of which I find myself in the deeply Fitzrovian position of saying, Hold your kombucha carefully, please, darling. And it really is one of those mornings. Everybody's furious and everything is awful. The traffic feels like a war zone, the news feels like a test, the weather feels like punishment and my exhaustion feels like a pulse. The delivery driver is looking about for a secret place to stash the package near Alastair's front steps and the yellow door behind him starts to open and... The toddler propels the kombucha on such a spectacular angle that it slams against the edge of the gutter and I am immediately and comprehensively sprayed with frothy fragments of glass and wet fizzy vinegar, the crisp white cardboard wet and brown down the middle like the yarra in the snow. How did that even happen? I find myself saying. And behind me, the delivery driver is talking to someone and the cardboard is slipping from my fingers and the toddler is beside himself and where are my keys and how is there glass in my hair? But it's only wet cardboard, I remind myself, and everything is going to be okay. Later, after several hours of delicate toddler negotiation, I am pushing a heavily sleeping child through the streets of Fitzroy when I come across Gail, who... Used to live in such a lovely street in Brighton. And who has crossed the road to remind me that tomorrow is the memorial for Alan the old man who lived in our street for 85 years but who has died. I ask her if she knows if I can bring anything and she says... Apparently it's a bring one's own chair situation. A prospect that clearly does not meet with her approval. The scientists are back in town, did you hear? She says, which has me mentally scrambling to recall recent news stories about teams of scientists arriving in Melbourne when I remember... There is a couple from further up the street, both of whom are scientists. Gail says... Any word from herself? Which I know means she is asking about Susanna, the woman who lives over the road, and who Gail once described as... A bit of a shut-in. But whose friendship she has recently embraced through the medium of impromptu late-night whiskey drinking. I tell her I haven't had a response to my text messages... Gail looks at me for several seconds. Tablecloths, she says suddenly. That was the other thing. Bring a tablecloth, if you have one. It's a sweet little haul, but it's the personal touches of these things, don't you think? Before we part ways, Gail leans into me and says... Regarding this business with the aviary... She's referring to the makeshift aviary out the back of Susanna's house... It's kind of a shambles and the council has condemned it after someone, everyone blames Alastair, complained. 
Presuming this Alistair chap complained to the council and triggered this whole business... Gail says, as though she is discussing a particularly grisly murder. Shall we invite him, do you think, to the wake? Which feels like quite the pivot from where I was thinking she was heading. She looks at me as though I've objected. Well, we can't expect people to assimilate if we don't invite them to be a part of things now, can we? And even though I'm not sure how thrilled Alastair would be to be invited to what is essentially a funeral for an old guy he never met, who used to live in his street but doesn't anymore, I tell her that's a lovely idea. And I watch her as she crosses the road, gesturing at the drivers to let her pass, which of course they do, because it's Gail who... Used to live in such a lovely street in Brighton. But who lives here now and is very much in charge. I'm walking away from Gale and through Fitzroy and marvelling at the speed with which the construction workers have rebuilt the tram stops in Nicholson Street when I see them. My two construction workers. The ones I like for not really any good reason except that they seem like nice people. One of them, the woman, is called Kylie. The other... A man with white hair, I can't quite remember. But they're walking towards each other now with the slovenly gait of people wearing heavy work boots. Kylie, whose face I can't see, tilts sideways slightly as she approaches him and says something. The white-haired guy scratches the side of his chin in a slightly self-conscious gesture. And I watch as a smile spreads itself across his whole face like the tide coming in. Something about it, you just know he's grinning despite his best intentions, and now it's all happening. Kylie, whose animation is usually in her face, steps back, both hands over her mouth, and then, giving it a good run-up, throws herself into his arms. She almost knocks him over. He lifts her off the ground for a moment and they're talking and hugging and one of them must have won the lottery or something because she pushes him back, holds him at arm's length and then hugs him again. And there isn't a single construction worker who hasn't stopped work to watch this. I'm walking along the fence that cages in what's left of the track work as this is happening and I'm thinking of the things I love. I love knitwear on small babies and dogs wearing jackets and how sometimes when you're listening to music through headphones it seems like other people are totally walking to your beat. I love the unmistakable high-pitched whine of a tram turning a corner and overhearing people mid-conversation like these two coming towards me now one of whom says... Well, there's always a dipshit. And if you can't locate the dipshit, you're probably the dipshit. And I love out-of-the-blue text messages and very sharp pencils and new book smell and those wordless signs on the sides of highways that have pictures of a cup of tea in a tent and a bed. And I love those nude gum trees with their bark all peeled off the bottom like discarded clothes and also boiled eggs and watching people make pizza dough and the word pipsqueak and Lamingtons, and you. Kylie launches herself at me when I tell her. 
and the pair of us look like a right pair of pork chops there in the middle of Nicholson Street. She tells everyone, of course. Matter of fact and grinning like the Cheshire bloody cat, and there's nothing I can do to stop her. All day I have people slapping me on the back. On your demo. Great news, demo. Yeah, great news about Margie, mate. And Kylie is so bloody happy I don't want to tell her I won't make it to her engagement due tomorrow. I'm about to say something about it once we've all calmed down, but she says quietly... I hear you've got a house guest. There's a magpie on a street sign looking down at us all. And how in God's name does she know about that? You should have told me, Damo. She says... We've got to pull out couch at ours. You don't want an apprentice sleeping at your place with Margie being... Margie's fine, I say. We have a spare room. It's been nice, actually. She looks at me. You should have told me. So I tell her then about Amir, the bloke she asked me to speak to a while back. I tell her about the conversation in the truck. I don't tell her everything. Not my story to tell. Just the length and breadth of it. She says... Poor Amir. That's when I say to her, Listen, about tomorrow... Tomorrow? God, don't worry about tomorrow. She says. But it doesn't sound quite casual enough when she says it, so I tell her about the wake. Your uncle died? She asks me. It's okay, I say. Had a good innings. She looks at me. Jeez, Damo. She says to me. What a time you've had. I feel it all catch in my throat when she says that. Have to give it a few seconds. Just me and the magpie, eye to eye. Hey, I tell her, look after Amir at this do of yours, will you? Margie's making him go, but he doesn't drink and... Got it. She says, and I swear I just saw her make ten new lists in her head. Well. She says. Time for you to buy me a coffee. And the joke is, she always pays for coffee. But today she won't pay for coffee. Today is my bloody shout, and even bloody Kylie won't be able to do a damn thing about it. The toddler is performing a personal best in the sleep department, and I have toured Fitzroy, North Fitzroy, Carlton and Collingwood by the time I start heading back. I pass three people asleep on park benches, their belongings bundled up under their heads, sleep finally safe and deep in the morning sun. Two skinny white guys with glassy eyes and gaunt angry faces walk the wrong way up a bike lane together, swearing at a distant tram. We even pass luminous Ute guy, our friendly neighbourhood sociopath, who is waiting for a bus and says, Hello, sleepyhead. <laughs> far too loudly, and the baby jackknives in the chair. On Gertrude Street, I see Zara, who used to be a cheeky kid in the playground, but who runs now towards the tram on the opposite side of the road, and when she sees me, play acts looking at a watch which isn't on her wrist. Zara, when I last saw her, was just back from her first trip to Sudan and had returned home to discover she had been awarded a scholarship to a school on the other side of town. Now, she sits in one of the backwards-facing seats and puts the palm of one hand on the tram window, like we're in a movie 
and she's leaving forever, her other hand clutched to her chest. The tram rewinds her into the city and her hand stays on the window all the way across Brunswick Street. Back in our street, I find Greg, whose ancient dog is sniffing a pole while he stands patiently next to it, already having seen me. Greg, I realised a while back, always sees you first. He says... This bloke. Shaking his head and looking towards Alastair's place. Alastair, who nobody likes but who nobody's met. The developer who Greg says is responsible for the knocking down of the housing commissions to make way for gentrified housing. The guy who asked Frankie from 100 if she had a permit to sit on the grass. I asked Greg if he thinks Alastair dobbed in Susanna's aviary to the council. You mean, did an inner city developer fail to consider the subtle nuances of a pre-existing community? Says Greg, by way of an answer. He tells me Susanna's friend Finn has organised a group of people to go around the back and rebuild her aviary for tomorrow while we're all at Alan's wake. Presuming she comes to the wake... He says. There's no chance. He says. That her name is Susanna. He's looking at her house. I've narrowed it down. He tells me. She's one of two people. Used to be very big in climate science. Did you know that? He shakes his head in something like admiration. What a decision. He says. And his dog blinks blindly up at him in expectation of a walk. To withdraw from it all. To be truly free of everybody. He says. An admirable stance. If you can sustain it. He and the dog are gone now and I'm trying to edge the pram through the door without waking the toddler. Susanna's house, or whatever her name might be, is quiet. Even the birds. Later, after dark, I'm out in the street rummaging around in the car because somehow someone has managed to lose a lunchbox somewhere between our late afternoon shopping expedition and the house. And of course I can find the lunchbox but not the lid and it's still so hot and the car is such a mess and I'm sweating and swearing and oh look I found a missing library book and half a sandwich but how can a lunchbox lid completely disappear when I hear someone walking past behind me I back out of the car and look up hello says the woman I take to be the sister of Alastair our neighbour who nobody likes but nobody's met I'm not sure why I think she's his sister, except that the entire neighbourhood has been involved in a surveillance program designed to figure out if he's the one responsible for dobbing in Susanna's homemade aviary to the council as breaching regulations. I say, Hi, you're... I point behind her at Alistair's posh new apartment with the huge, sharp yellow door. Beck, she says. I introduce myself. I saw you this morning, actually, she says. I'm trying to remember this morning. She smiles. With a kombucha? And we laugh. I decide on the fly that I might as well lean into the frazzled mother stereotype, so I explain about the stupid lunchbox lid and the special cardboard we bought today for the school project, which is now upstairs, warped and murky brown. When she laughs, she gets a dimple on one cheek, and I remember Frankie from number 100 sitting in her armchair in the sun assessing Alistair on his tiny little balcony. He doesn't lack hands. And even though this Beck person looks tired and day-worn and wears one of those slightly drab polo shirts with a health professional insignia on the pocket, she's certainly not lacking in the hands department. Are you living here? 
I ask her. She looks behind her in surprise. Here? No. Oh, no. She says. This is my brother's place. Alistair? Have you met? Uh, probably not. He's had a bit of a... There's been a court case. She smiles into the middle distance, but the air goes out of her a bit. She looks at me again. His business partner took him to the cleaners. She says. Been going on for months. Oh, no. I say, suddenly aware I'm holding half a sandwich in a library book. She's looking behind me again, to nowhere. Came down from Maryborough to yell at him, actually. For not looking after our mum. I'm here for a conference over at the women's hospital, but turns out... She says. For a second, I think she might be about to cry. She looks at me. Men, eh? She says, and pulls herself up like a marionette doll, filling her lungs with air and delivering a grim smile. I ask her if her brother's okay. They reached a settlement today. She tells the air behind me. Which is... I mean, it's great news. He gets to keep these. She gestures behind her at the matching apartments. One huge red door, one yellow, their metal handles gleaming under the streetlights. I mean, lucky for some, am I right? One for him, one for Mum. He lost a lot, but I think even he knows this is a good result. She says. And then she smiles. I haven't raised the Mum bit with him just yet. She says. I decide to tell her mostly by way of having something to offer in this rather one-sided conversation about the wake tomorrow for Alan, who used to live directly over the road, who lived there for 85 years. We look at his empty house together. She says... 85 years, eh? I tell her, partly because Gail told me to, that she and Alistair are invited if they'd like to come. We'll all be there, I say to her. You all? She says... So, you're a pretty close neighbourhood, then? The question takes me by surprise. I feel embarrassed by it somehow and don't know how to answer. I look over at Susanna's house and feel a little fraudulent suddenly. I only recently discovered there was someone living in there at all. Is she coming? Asks Beck, nodding at Susanna's house. She plays the most lovely music. Then, I say, before I can stop myself... We don't know if she's coming, actually. Someone reported her aviary to the council. We, we think she's a bit distressed. Beck doesn't say anything for a bit, and then she turns to me, slowly. I tell you what, she says. Alistair and I will see you tomorrow. Where did you say it was, this wake? We say goodnight eventually, and I'm back in the car looking for the stupid lunchbox lid and wondering whether I blew it, telling her about the whole aviary thing. When I hear her voice outside behind me say, Can we bring something? I twist myself back out and tell her that apparently they need tablecloths. She looks at me. Listen. She says. I don't want to betray my own brother, but do you reckon there's even a slim chance he owns a tablecloth? I laugh. She does a jaunty little going back inside pantomime. Find out. After the break, she says, and I have to say, despite his bad press in the neighbourhood, that I do like Alistair's sister. The lunchbox lid, by the way, had been posted between two seat cushions into the boot by a child who sleeps now, untroubled by my late-night vehicular fossicking. I look back at the street before I head inside, and the only light I can see is the orange square above the sharp yellow door of Alistair's house where a woman called Beck moves around in her brother's kitchen, waiting for him to come home 
and searching in vain for a tablecloth. Mm-hmm.